listening to On The Road with Mike and Andy, the number one Australian weekly trucking podcast made for Aussie truckies by Aussie truckies. Listen to On The Road on the Australian Big Rigs Radio Roadshow and via podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify and now also on iHeartRadio. Just search for On The Road Aussie Trucking Podcast. On The Road is brought to you by NTI, Australia's leading transport and logistics insurer. Visit the website at nti.com.au. Welcome back to the show. We've got a couple of extra special episodes coming your way this week and next week. As this episode goes live, Mike and his lovely bride are making the long trek from Sydney to Perth. So we recorded a couple of great interviews earlier and saved them up till now to share them with you all. This week, Mike talks to Gus Pagel, who, as a 15-year-old, undertook an amazing adventure from Melbourne to Germany in an old four-wheel drive posty truck. Now, next week, you'll hear the incredible story of a bloke who did the same trip, but the other way round. And what's more, he did it on a bicycle. Fact is indeed stranger than fiction. Let's get this show rolling with a great tongue-in-cheek song from Brad James, with more great music later from Lincoln Durham. We've got our regular news segment, plus that's what you think. All in all, it's another big one, so here we go. G'day, I'm Yogi from Outback Chuckers, and when I'm on the road, we're always on the road doing stuff out on the road, but when we're on the road, we're listening to the big rigs on the road. (laughs) This is Simon Smith here from the Australian Big Rig Radio Roadshow.com. Truck and radio is what we do across Australia 24-7. Loads of truck and classics every hour. If you'd like to drop us a line, love to hear from you at some stage. Our email address, bigrigradio at yahoo.com.au. Catch it down the road and take it steady out there. The Australian Big Rig Radio Roadshow.com. There seems to be something of a trend happening here and overseas where truck drivers are turning their hands to songwriting and recording their music. A couple of weeks ago we heard a new song from Kermie's Canadian mate Mike Marchant. This week we're featuring a US-based trucker by the name of Brad James. Now Brad's been making quite a name for himself in the country music scene over there and to kick off our show for this week, here's his take on Otis Redding's classic Dock of the Bay. The song's called Detention, You Ordered It, You Unload It. And I'm pretty sure you're going to relate to the lyrics of this fun song. Here's Brad James. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching other trucks roll in Then I watch them roll away again I've been backed up to this dock all day Watching the other trucks roll away I've been sitting at the dock all day Just wasting time I left my home in Georgia Headed for the Frisco Bay Cause I've got freight to deliver Looks like nothing's gonna go my way I've been sitting at the dock all day Just watching the other trucks roll away I've been sitting at the dock all day 
insane I can't do what dispatch wants me to do So I guess I'll just make them pay Sitting here with dispatch on hold Lord, you know that this shit's getting old Two million miles I've roamed Just to make this truck my home and I've been back to, to the dock all day Just watching the other trucks roll away I've been sitting at the dock all day Just wasting time Got a chat with me today, Gus Pagel, who's written a book called From Australia to Germany. Gus, along with a couple of other people, got in a posty van in 1969, left Melbourne, travelled across Australia, travelled through India, all the way up through East Asia, across Eastern Europe to Germany, and finally finished up in Holland. It's an incredible story. And he introduced me to a guy named Fred Glasbrenner, who did the trip with the other way on a push bike. These two guys blow me away. They've lived a life that many of us would be envious of. <laughs> it's a cracker. It's real Leyland Brothers stuff. Gus, how are you going? Yeah, pretty good down here in Melbourne. I came across you on Twitter and I looked at your story and I thought, this is amazing. This is all happening in the, what, late 60s, wasn't it? Yep, 1969 uh, was the year of departure. And this was all about the same time when there was a lot of this sort of stuff going on. There was the Leyland brothers doing their thing and Harry Butler running around doing his thing and you obviously went and did your thing. Yep. Did you know about other people doing similar things at that time? How did this all happen? That's, that's what I want to know. How does a 15-year-old kid end up in a posty van... <laughs> on his way across Australia and across Europe. How does that happen? Well, it's quite a remarkable story, really. I mean, I grew up a little bit with the Leyland brothers, and I was always interested in travel, per se, and exotic locations. I watched Tor Heyerdahl and his various quests that he did, and I remember the Leyland brothers coming to the Hawthorne Town Hall and watching some of their movies. And it sort of gave you the feeling of wanting to get out there and being in the scouts. I love camping and, and roughing it up a bit. So when a good friend of mine, or a good friend of the family's basically, said he was going back to Europe, he had a contract with a German company here in Australia and it was coming to an end. So he wanted to go back to Germany, but he decided he'd go by land. And it was only by pure luck that I actually became a passenger, so to say, on, on this trip. Because I, although I was involved in the re-equipping and fixing the, the actual truck that we used, it wasn't part of the plan to actually go along. But one of the people that uh, was going to go pulled out. And so Helmut Schmidtman, who was the, the leader of the group and the owner of the actual truck, I said, well, I can't go with two people. Hmm. And I basically nagged my parents to go and use the excuse that if I did my apprenticeship in Germany, I'd save two years of my <laughs> life and wouldn't be sitting behind a desk and slaving and filing and drilling holes for two years unnecessarily. How was mum with it, though? Was mum happy with it all? Not really. Neither was dad. It was all a pretty hard thing to uh, let your son go away. And I think as a 15-year-old, you don't sort of see that until much later in life. Mm. But they took all the 
positive things and said, well, look, it is true that if you go to Germany and do your apprenticeship or in Holland, you'll have a better education and you can do it in three and a half years or not five years as it was back then in Australia. Right. So the motivating thing was the, the opportunity basically just fell in your lap and you wanted to grab it as an adventurous 15-year-old who wouldn't and you managed to talk mum and dad into letting you do it. A lot of talking, a lot of talking. <laughs> I can imagine. See, this is the sort of thing that we wouldn't even consider. We would not even consider letting a 15-year-old do today what you did back then. You'd be called mad if you even considered doing it, I think, wouldn't you? It wasn't very much different back then, but, I mean, it was a different time. We had the Vietnam War back then, and during that time, that was about the only really crazy thing going around for Australia back then. But other than that, places were quite safe right up until a few years ago you could leave your front door open yeah you couldn't do any of that today and just going saying a 15 year old getting in the car and going from here to perth seems quite ridiculous as well yeah so your parents immigrated from holland to australia did they they did they kidnapped me back in 1957 took me against my will to australia <laughs> as a three-year-old and we ended up in south australia in a place not far from narracourt on a rural farm there for a number of years and then finally made it back to melbourne here yeah that's where it sort of started with the boarding house that my parents owned that's where the journey started actually from the boarding house which had about 30 odd people in it at the time so the guy that got the old posty van that you guys did up, posty van's probably not really what people would understand. It was an international scout or something, wasn't it? It was a four-wheel drive. It was actually bigger than a scout. Yeah. The international harvester nowadays doesn't exist, but it was basically a truck. A scout would have been much too small. In actual fact, I didn't have very much to do with the choice of the vehicle, although I was present at the time. Yeah. But we looked at other vehicles as well, like Jeeps and Nissans and all that, but they were all just too small. Yeah. We wanted the ground clearance and a size that you could fit out so that three people could actually sleep inside as well. Yeah. And we fitted it out in such a way that there were three bunks and big enough for that. Plus, we carried about a tonne of spares. But you ended up with a trailer and everything as well, didn't you? Yes, because we actually had too much. We really did. With a tonne of spares, including dips and wheel bearings and tail shafts and stuff like that, we just had too much. And then with our personal belongings on top of all that, yeah, we had to end up getting a trailer. A few kilometres out of Melbourne, we decided, no, we can't go like this. We couldn't pull over and camp because we had to unload everything and it was too inconvenient. Yeah. So you set up this trailer, I think, down at Warrnambool from memory when I read through the book and you Correct. did all that and towed it across the country without pulling it to pieces. And yep. then you cut it up and chucked it inside the vehicle to go on the ship, didn't you? Well, we'd already booked the passage with the freight liner. Mm-hmm with a cargo ship from Perth. And when we got to Perth, of course, we hadn't allowed for the trailer because it wasn't part of the plan. So we had to actually pull the whole thing apart, get the Zetland torch out and cut it into little pieces so it would fit inside the uh, actual truck. And we shipped it over to India inside the truck. Right. Let's just talk about going across Australia for a minute, okay? Mm. So how long did it take you to go from Melbourne to Perth? What way did you go? From Melbourne, we basically left just before Christmas and headed towards the Grampians where we stayed overnight mm. and did a bit of camping in a camping area that was already existing that we'd made some huts up. Yeah. And from the Grampians, we went down Mount Gambia across to Adelaide and from Adelaide straight up north to Alice Springs. And from Alice Springs, basically cut through right over to Perth. That was probably the most difficult part because a lot of those roads weren't even on the map. That's a fairly wild drive over there even now. So did you go past Ayers Rock or did you go north of Ayers Rock? 
Well, we went into Alice Springs, then we made a day trip. You made a day trip there as well? Basically speaking, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then went to Hidden Valley, which was highly recommended. Mm. That was quite an eye-opener because it was an oasis in the middle of nowhere. Mm. And for me, that was an eye-opener because before you get there, there's just desert and stretches of sand and sand and more sand, and all of a sudden you're coming to a lush forest with creeks, birds, and flora and flora, and, and you know, it was just humid. And in actual fact, it only supposed to rain once every seven years, and it did while we were there, and that just made it so much more special. Yeah. Well, that just reminds me of when you're talking about it raining while you're there. That reminds me, I was, as a kid, I saw the Leyland brothers at Rained at Ayers Rock while they were there. And mm. you know, it's such a rare occurrence out there to get that. It really adds a different dimension. And then you basically cut across country through the desert to where some of these old stations were and you helped someone out who had an accident out there, I think, from memory reading the book. And then you ended up in Perth. Yeah, that was quite an incredible thing. We were just on the side of the road having lunch when we heard this truck coming along. Mm. I remember saying, gee, that guy's going a bit fast as he's moving past. And sure enough, after we finished our lunch and everything, headed down the road, there he was in the ditch. Wow. It was a semi-towing uh, Holden station wagon and the station wagon had taken a good beating because it come off the back of the trailer and the roof was pushed in. We spent the whole day fixing up the Holden. And we had a good look at his prime mover because it was very similar to ours and we'd had a bit of a problem with our steering gear, mm. underrated for what it was and it just wouldn't stack up to all the corrugations. We were worried that he'd probably lost his front axle or something had gone wrong with his steering, but everything was intact. He must have just either fallen asleep or just gone off the road and hit something. Yeah. Just tipped it over. So that was a bit of a good thing in one way because that assured us there was no big mechanical fault with ours and it wasn't worse than what we expected. So then you finally got to Perth, and so that's what, several weeks later you got to Perth? Yep. Packed it all up and chucked it on a ship to India? Yep, that was the end destination, was India, and that's where we were supposed to offload the truck. But in the meantime, we travelled from Perth, we went to Singapore, which was, for me, my first encounter and my first eye-opener of being in a foreign country. <laughs> Pretty different place, Singapore. <laughs> oh, well, it was back then. I mean, it's not like it is today. No. You really had campongs and villages, and you still saw chickens run across the road and sheep and pigs, and there was a lot of jungle and a lot of trees, not like today. Yeah, it's a completely different place. Yeah, so... How did you go with all the passports and all the border control and all that sort of thing for the trip? I mean, this is something that you'd have to negotiate today with visas and all that sort of stuff would have been a lot more complicated back then, surely? Well, a lot of it was done before we left. And basically, things were a lot simpler back then too. I mean, they didn't have computers. I think if it didn't look suspicious and you weren't on a terrorist list or watch out list of some sort, I don't think they really had a lot of control as to who they actually let in. I mean, they probably had a list of people from around the world that they were looking for. And if you weren't on the list, if you look okay, I think they stamped your thing and gave you your visa on site. But most of the visas we got before we left. Yeah. The same with vaccination. So you drove through, you obviously must have seen some pretty incredible sights. I mean, as a 15-year-old, it must have been one continual wow experience from day to day, surely. I think Alice Spring and Hidden Valley, no, sorry, it wasn't called Hidden Valley, it was Palm Valley, Palm Valley. Yeah, they were quite incredible, and of course, going into Malaysia and Singapore, and then once you get to India and all the temples, India in itself is just full of wow factors, which never stop. Yeah. You could spend six months in India alone and not see even a tenth of what was to be seen, pretty much like Australia, really. Yeah. 
Taj Mahal for me wasn't really one of the highlights. It was certainly an interesting building, but for me, all it was was just an interesting building. As a 16-year-old, yeah. I found it more interesting that not far from there was another mob, some sort of sect of some sort, were building something bigger and better than the Taj Mahal, and they were building it out of black marble rather than white marble. And that was quite fascinating, and they'd already been working on it for 30, 40 years. By the time we got there and we saw all those stonemasons cutting and polishing the stones and putting them in place, that was quite incredible. Yeah, well, sort of everyone just talks about the Taj Mahal, and that's pretty much it, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, and I think it's a bit like Elvis Presley's house. Once you get there, you say, oh, is this it? Is that all there is? Yeah. And I felt a little bit that way with Taj Mahal. I mean, I don't know what it's like today, but there was enough people around there to sort of say, oh, yeah, we've seen it. Let's get out of here. Yeah. And most of the places we went, tourists didn't go. We weren't looking for tourist destinations anyway. Yeah. So back in the late 60s and early 70s, Pakistan, Afghanistan and everything, they weren't countries with the same issues that we associate with them now, are they? No, definitely not. I must admit we had fantastic hospitality shown to us by the people from Pakistan, Afghanistan and even Turkey. People with nothing, they had nothing. They'd welcome you into their house. You'd have to have a cup of tea and some sort of small cake or something. And if you didn't take on the hospitality, they'd be pretty upset. Yeah, It was just absolutely incredible. I don't think that if you were American, you would have got the same sort of respect or hospitality, but we certainly didn't make our suit for Americans. So I think that made a difference. I spoke a little bit of German, and Holman, the leader, was German. So there was a bit of a connection there with a lot of the people because they send their family members to Germany to go and work and then send money back. And so we'd always come across somebody, are oh, you from Germany? Are you from Germany? Come, come. So it was always very hospitable. You couldn't do it today. Yeah. It just wouldn't be possible. I mean, I wouldn't even dare try and. Through Turkey, through Bulgaria, and up through Yugoslavia, etc. I mean, once again, back in the day where you did this, they were very, very different countries to what they are now, and obviously a lot of different influences there. I'm not saying anything disparaging about any of these countries by pointing out that the years have certainly changed the country and the complexion of the country in the same way that it's changed Australia. We're certainly not the same as we were back then either. I think Australia's changed a little bit, but places like Pakistan and Afghanistan, they've changed a lot more. Mm. But it's not so much the people. I think it's the governments that changed. Mm. People's outlook on life is only influenced by governments and multimedia. I mean, television or what have you not. I think that basically the people are still the same. With the Taliban and all the rest of the rubbish that goes on, people can get influenced by what they see and hear. And if it's all one-sided, then, of course, people start to believe in what they hear and get a little bit brainwashed, which is unfortunate. Yeah, it is. You come across some Americans in Turkey. They seem to interest you a little bit. What happened there? To be very honest, I don't remember the particular occasion you're talking about, Mike. (laughs) lose me a little bit that way. Well, okay, all right. Well, I've read the book and, <laughs> well, you only wrote it, so what would you know? Exactly. Well, let me just I'll just flip open the book, shall we? Because I've got it here. In. You're not referring to the little issue that we might have had at the uh, border? Yes, I am actually, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes, well, there were three of us that uh, left from Melbourne. It was myself, Helmut, chap by the name of Martin Smith. When we got to the border, yes, we sort of asked Martin to take his luggage and make his way to Germany by himself and take the Midnight Express from Istanbul and we'd meet him in Germany if he ever arrived, yeah. which he didn't. Yeah. Never heard from him since, actually. Okay. I've sort of tried to find out, tried to do a bit of a Google search on him and see what actually did happen to him, but he sort of vanished off the face of the earth and parents have passed away in the meantime. Yeah. In the original book, it wasn't actually explained what happened. That's what I'm asking you. What happened there? 
There's more to the story, obviously. Well, let's say he had a rather large quantity of a substance which you smoked that you shouldn't have had. <laughs> I wasn't a smoker, neither was Helmet. Yeah. And to the best of our knowledge, he didn't smoke either. Yeah, oh, right, eh? But somewhere along the line, he had acquired, we didn't know, and he stuffed it all in his suitcase. I found out about it, and mm. we made the decision that, no, 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 we're not going through this particular border, carrying that stuff. You can carry that across yourself. Yeah, see you later. Well, if you've ever seen the movie Midnight Express, that's a pretty good example of what would have happened. Yeah. We saw hundreds of cars in no man's land between the two countries where people have been caught with hashish or whatever sort of stuff. It was mainly hashish back then. Yeah. And they just strip the car, and if they find stuff, then the car gets impounded, and you get locked up, and you'd be lucky to get out in 20 years. So attitudes really haven't changed too much with respect to that, then, have they? Not really, no. It was quite severe. I mean, we were stuck at one of the borders where they virtually took our vehicle apart, took out all the side panels from the inside. Yeah. Because we stuffed it full with insulation, kept out the heat from the desert in Australia, and then also kept the warmth in when we got into Austria and Germany. Yeah. And they pulled out all the insulation. That was some sort of fiberglass wall back then, and it wasn't nice stuff to handle. They didn't have a clue what it was, and they were pulling it out, and they were putting matches to it to see if it would burn, and they said, oh, our hands are all itchy. It must be drugs. They said, no, that's the fiberglass. Yeah. We should be using gloves and things. So they didn't find anything because we'd already told the other chap to go on his merry way. Yeah. We'll be back for the rest of this great chat right after this. There's nothing more devastating for a truck operator than to be involved in a serious road incident. We've all seen the impact of heavy vehicle accidents and at these times, when people are most vulnerable, it's critical that they have immediate support from a strong, stable, reliable and experienced organisation. NTI is Australia's number one truck insurer, the specialist you can count on to protect your transport and logistics assets, with the know-how to take control of the situation and the capability to reduce lost income by getting trucks back on the road again as soon as possible. Specialist products, experienced people, accredited repair and recovery networks and industry advocacy is what we do. It's our specialty and we've been doing it for more than 45 years. For more information, visit the website at nti.com.au or go to the NTI Facebook page. A lot of interesting stuff in this book, little moments that I read and I sort of had a bit of a laugh like a certain meal of a stew affair you had one night there that you're talking about and various other little bits and pieces, visits to the bazaars. Well, you have to become creative when you're cooking out in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and there's only so much you can do with a can of beans. So you had to vary things and oh, it was good when we got to places like Singapore, Malaysia and that to go for a meal somewhere and it cost you like less than a dollar. You could have very good meals and same in Turkey and Afghanistan and just go to the local bazaars. Of course, you had to pick and choose what they were eating. Yeah. And a lot of them wouldn't have meat and you probably wouldn't want to have some of the meat that was out for market anyway with all the flies hanging around. There was no refrigeration. Yeah. A lot of it was vegetarian food. On the whole trip, like between pretty much Australia and Germany, is there anything really that stands out in your memory today? The whole experience is obviously unforgettable, but what are the standout moments for you? I would say probably the eye of was at Singapore yeah. because it was a completely different culture. That was outstanding. That stayed with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. And then once we got into India and then we had to go from India into Pakistan and then going up into the mountains, very high up. Our truck couldn't handle the high altitude as much as what it should have. 
that caused sort of problems with the engine and blowing the radiator a couple of times, soldering it all up and then coming into Kabul and having some leaks repaired probably in one of the backyard mechanics who didn't drain the tank. He just started soldering on a tank that had petrol in it <laughs> oh, and it sort of said, well, we just sort of hightailed it out there and came back an hour later. We'll go for a walk. <laughs> Incredible. But nothing happened and we got our tank back in one piece. It was quite incredible. So finally getting to Germany and then obviously getting on to Holland afterwards, how long did this trip take altogether? It was several months. Six months. Six months. Yeah, it was six months basically all up, yep. So when you got to Holland, what did you do when you got there? You promised mum and dad you were going to do the apprenticeship. Yep, I stayed with my auntie, my mum's sister, and went to school there. Had to learn the language, of course, although I did understand it. I wasn't fluent in speaking that, so I had to learn the language. Mm. That went all right. But in the end, got pretty sick and tired of filing round bits of metal into squares. <laughs> and I said, well, this isn't working out too well. And after about two and a half years, I decided that there's got to be a better way of becoming a fitter and turner. Yep. And ended up going to Japan, where my friend Helmut was working. And he said, well, if you come over here, I can get you a job in the company that he works for. And after we finish three months of work, I'm planning on traveling around Japan if you want to come and do that. So I said, yep, that's what I'm going to do. And I went and lived in Japan for 12 months and worked over there and did a round trip of Japan from top to bottom. So that would have been about 1973, somewhere around there. 1972, actually. I've been to Japan only last year, and it's an amazing place to me, obviously very different in the 70s to what it is now. Mm. What did you see in Japan that intrigued you? Well, Japan was just a completely different culture, again, coming from Holland and Europe. Mm. It was just how clean and basically how friendly everybody was, and the food was fantastic. Food is fantastic. But just the countryside. I think travelling around Japan was just amazing. Again, we didn't go to a lot of the tourist places. We went to all the major islands took back roads where we possibly could and used a Japanese map. So we had to learn map reading in Japanese, which was good fun because their maps, like our Malways or whatever books we've got here, they were excellent over there in Japan. But like I said, not a word of English. <laughs> and the signs were all in Japanese. <laughs> but we had an old-fashioned compass, the same as what we had on our trip from Melbourne to Germany. We had a compass like that on board and used the compass and standard navigating skills. And you know, we always got to where we wanted to go. When I was in Japan last year, Rose and I went to an old sword museum, which was off the beaten track, certainly not on the regular tourist route. And we ended up in a place where there were no English signs and no one that spoke English and no, that... trying to get your way around. And we managed. It was through sign language persistence and courtesy. Yep. We got to where we wanted to go. And I think it was one of the most memorable experiences of our trip, actually getting out away from where the tourists are, seeing the real people. Oh, definitely. I'd recommend that to anyone that goes overseas if you get the chance. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's no point going to France and just going to Paris. Yeah. You've got to go out into the country. As good as Melbourne is, if you're coming from overseas, New York or wherever, you come to Melbourne, that's not Australia. No, it's not. It's part of Australia, but out in the country is where you get to see the real Australia and Australian people. And the same goes with Japan. I mean, I'm convinced, and I know that for a fact, that in Japan we've been to places where they hadn't even seen Westerners. I think I've got a website up there somewhere and some YouTube video of Japan that I made back then. We were stuck in a, what do you call it, was a hurricane? Typhoon. Typhoon. And that was one of the largest ones to hit Japan in 1972, and it was huge. And we happened to be on the right side of a huge mountain. Yeah. But we certainly did cop a lot of the winds, but we were on the opposite side of the mountain where it was actually coming past. Yeah. But all the roads were blocked, 
and there were any cars coming in the opposite way, you'd have to back up for probably a couple of kilometres or so before it go past each other. Yeah. They're the size of the roads that we were travelling on and ended up in villages where people would just gawk at you and say, oh, what are they doing here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it was good. I was just amazed by the architecture and the old beside the new. Yep. You're on a bullet train doing 300 kilometres an hour and you're going past a village that looks like it was built in the 1800s, you know? <laughs> That's right. And it probably was too because, I mean, that was one of the things I grew up with in Melbourne and going to school here was the old samurai movies. Yeah. So I was all into ninjas and samurai yeah that was one of the things i looked forward to is was going to one of those samurai museums with the swords and yeah. with the ninjas and their hidden rooms that they had yeah. they would slide panels around and they have a whole room you couldn't see it was quite amazing uh, rose and i went and visited some of the old castles we went to hamiji castle and one of the things that struck me, we climbed to the top. The stairs are like horrible angles and stupidly narrow. And yes. you climb up all the way up to the top. And Rose and I are standing there side by side at the very top floor of the Hamiji Castle, which has been standing there for hundreds of years. It's been restored, of course. Mm. But there are parts of the floor that are original and the walls are original. It's as it was, and it's one of the locations that has been used in some of the Bond films. But Rose and I stood up there on top, and we're looking out the windows over the landscape, and we're standing exactly in the place where some samurai lord would have stood to look out and survey his land, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's an incredibly humbling experience to stand there, and makes the hackles stand on my neck now just thinking about it. Yep, I agree. It's just one of those things that just live with you, and... Rose and I went to the Baizun Osafune Sword Museum and we watched some of the artisans there. They actually still make swords there in the traditional style with the traditional methods and you can walk through and see it. Amazing. When we were looking at swords that were made by the master craftsmen in the 1300s. Yeah, and the quality of the steel is just absolutely remarkable when you compare it to the stuff today and how we can make things today. And you compare it to the things that they were doing back in the 1300s. The steel quality was absolutely fantastic. And the sharpness and how tough the steel was to keep that sharp edge, just unbelievable. I was amazed at how caring and how sharing the people were I've experienced this traveling in other places in the world, and I'm sure you have as well. If you're interested in what they're showing you and what they're telling you, they're happy. They will share this information with you freely, and it's a great learning experience. Most of them, you can't stop them once they start. (laughs) And they're full of knowledge. Those sort of things are getting lost in time. Yeah. Those are the type of things that are disappearing in our lifetime, and who knows in 100 years' time, what will we have to look back on? Hmm. I'm fairly sure that barring major natural disasters, Hamiji Castle will still be standing. Yeah, well, 100% true. I mean, Nagoya, where I was stationed, Mm. there's a beautiful castle there. And again, like you say, it's just amazing that they could survive for five, six hundred years with all the earthquakes. Even a lot of the temples. I mean, the only reason why some of these temples disappeared is because they actually burned down because they're made out of timber. Yeah, that's right. And if it wasn't for that, they'd still be standing today because they actually move with the earthquakes. I mean, they give and sway, which a solid concrete building doesn't do. Yeah, so... Obviously, the castles through Europe and all that sort of stuff are along the same line. Yep. I haven't been to any of the European castles. I'd love to get through and see some of those German castles. Just absolutely fascinating to go and have a look at all that stuff. There's so many there that after a while you can get a bit of an overload, and it's the same in (laughs) India with the temples. Yeah. They are magnificent to look at, and some of them are all hand-carved timber columns. But after a while, after you've seen about five or six, you say, okay, we've had quite enough. (laughs) If I see one more castle, I've had enough. 
If you've seen five castles in three months, yeah. let's say in a month or so, I think you should start looking for something else to have a look at. Yeah. That's my personal opinion anyway, but it's the same as a lot of museums. They can get pretty boring after a while unless you go to something which is completely different, yeah. not just showing paintings on the walls. Now, when did you come back to Australia? Around about 1982, after I went back to Germany, mm. I went back and finished my apprenticeship, got my licence as a Freeman Turner, worked in Europe, travelled Europe while I was working there, went to Holland, England, France, and ended up in Nigeria for a short stint for the same mob that I was working for, installing woodworking machinery. Yeah. And one of my contracts was to set up and install a Louvador manufacturing plant here in Melbourne. And I took that straight away because that gave me an opportunity to come back again to Melbourne to see my parents. Yeah. And when I got back, I said, nah, can't leave mum and dad again. So virtually stayed here. And so you've been in Australia ever since? Pretty much. I did a stint in Singapore for a couple of years, worked over there. Yep. But pretty much here most of the time, yeah. I assume you've retired now? No, who can afford to retire? I wish I could. <laughs> no, I'm in the transport industry, but like yourself, I've got my own transport company and mainly courier work. All right. I've eh? gotten out of all the big stuff, not interested in handling all the big work, so just doing courier work. have a, a client that's been loyal to me for the last 25 years and do all their transport. They're only loyal because they get good service, Gus. That, that's how that happens. Thank you very much, yes. One of the main reasons. Speaking from <laughs> experience. No, that's true. So you play around doing that sort of thing. You obviously travel a bit when you get a chance still. Uh, yeah, not as much as I'd like to. I think when I do retire, I'll probably do something going around Australia, I would say. Mm. At the moment, though, there's too much for other things to do. I worked for a friend of mine that I've known for 40 years. He's invented a new product. Mm. Trying to keep busy. If you just want to give your book a bit of a plug, it's From Australia to Germany, written by yourself, Gus Pagel. Correct, yep. And that's available on Amazon, isn't it? Yep, it's on Amazon Kindle. Huh. I've got a couple of hard copies left. People in Australia want a copy. I'm not going to be sending them overseas because it's too expensive. I think it costs about $18 to ship something overseas, and then you probably won't get it either. Yeah. But if somebody's interested, look us up on Twitter. Happy to post it out. And the hard copy comes with a DVD, which I think you've also seen. I have seen the DVD. It was a worthy addition to the book, and it certainly gave you that visual component. I was fortunate enough to make a lot of that filming myself. I did a lot of the filming. We used a 16mm film, which was cinema quality. Mm. So all the good bits have been done by myself. (laughs) (laughs) After it was finished, and it was probably about 20 years ago, we had it converted over to beta tape, and from beta to VHS, and from VHS into uh, digital. So we lost a lot of the quality back then. The original film's still in Germany, so at the moment I'm just trying to uh, retrieve that from Germany and have it re-digitised so that we can actually make a much better quality film out of what we've got. Well, you know what? I reckon people would love to see that. Just on what I've read in your book and the short bits of footage that I've seen, if you were to get that remastered Mm. and narrate it and explain the story, I reckon that'd be brilliant. 20 years ago, the computer that I had was a Commodore 64 or something similar and wasn't up to actually doing much editing on that computer back then. Mm. If we would have had an iMac like we've got today, we would have had a much better result, but the computer couldn't handle it, so I had to stop doing much of the editing back then. And there was no sound. So all the sound that is on that DVD was put in... 20 years ago, yeah. that was quite a, a long job. And that took six months just to put the sound on. Hmm. I've got to thank you too for putting me in touch with Fred Glasbrenner to have a chat with him. 
because he did the trip the other way. I believe you've been mates with him for a good while as well. Yes, well, he wrote a book about his little journey, and it was incredible to think that there were more crazy people than myself. I mean, travelling <laughs> in the opposite direction on a bicycle was just absolute madness. Yeah. Tell you what, you guys are right out there. You really are. <laughs> I'd love to sit down and have a chat with the two of you for an afternoon over a beer. I reckon we'd get ourselves quietly sourced and have a good laugh at the same time. It'd be really good. <laughs> I don't think you'd get away from Fred that quickly. You're going to take longer than an afternoon. I think so. Yeah, Fred's <laughs> got a lot of stories. Oh, mate, I tell you, I've, I've got to talk to him again. His podcast is the next one to come up after yours. I wanted to have yours first and put Fred on next. Thank you. What an amazing story you two guys have got. And I've just got to thank you for talking with me and sharing the experience with me. No, thank you very much, Mike, for the time that you've put in and contacting me. It's been a real pleasure. I'm going to wrap it up and tell everyone, get hold of Gus on Twitter. All of the contact details are going to be on the notes for the show. The book From Australia to Germany is available on Amazon. Look it up. The guy's name's Gus Pagel. Thanks for joining me, mate. Thanks, Mike. All the best. Just a quick word about our sponsors. Go to our webpage, www.ontheroadpodcast.com.au and you can see who the friends of the show are. And if their products are something that you are interested in or something that you may need, please support them because they support us and they bring our show to you. It's time for That's What You Think. Some say they're too opinionated for their own good. Some say they're just a pair of grumpy old men. We just know them as Mike and Andy. Wake me when the show starts. It's already been on a while. Wake me when it's over. Hey, Mike, you're a man of the world, mate, with your finger on the pulse of society. Mm. So tell me, what is this toxic masculinity I'm hearing about all the time? Toxic masculinity. Mm. This is real men being men, doing men things. And that's toxic, isn't it? Apparently, if you try to be a role model and do things to show your children what you need to do as a man, that's apparently wrong. Look, toxic masculinity is a bit of a catch-all phrase, I think, for anything that some rabid feminist with pink hair and black eyeshadow <laughs> can't stand. Yep. It's a little bit controversial. Yeah. According to people these days, I'm just a grumpy old white guy, right? Mm -hmm. And I've had white privilege and all that sort of stuff. Yep. And I sort of think to myself, well, actually, I lived in a housing commission house as a kid. I went to a public school. I got the crap beaten out of me once a week by some bloke who was older than me because he wanted my lunch money. And until I learned that you needed to be a little bit toxically masculine and kick him in the nether regions, I modified my language there for the listeners. Well done. You've got to stand up for yourself. You've got to take responsibility for yourself. My old man always taught me, if you can't stand up for yourself and those you care about and the things that you care about, then son, you are not a man. And that was the way I was raised. Yep. I'm not the only one, I'm sure, that sometimes looks at what's going on in society today and thinks, oh my God, we are doomed. Yep. Send the asteroid now. As for sending the asteroid, it's okay if they do. They've got a cream for that now. <laughs> I think it's asteroid. I just look around and you're fully aware I'm on social media and I get to see a lot of comments and I think to myself, my God, did someone actually really say that out loud? Mm. And then when someone else applauds them for it, you've only got to look at this Australian of the Year person. It started off with this whole wokeism thing. 
look, everyone's allowed to have an opinion, and I get that. I'm fully out. I'm fully on board with that. You know, everyone's entitled to my opinion. <laughs> you know. Yep. And I don't have a problem with that. The problem that I've got is when people silence my opinion or try to silence someone else's opinion. I don't try and silence anyone. Sooner or later, if they're a fool, it becomes evident. Yeah. Toxic masculinity, to get back to the subject, which is I know what you want. Well, I'm easy. <laughs> is anything that apparently was what a normal man was when I was growing up. Yeah. You know, my old man would be so toxically masculine now, it'd be just ridiculous. Yeah. He wouldn't be able to walk around the street. He'd spin in his grave. In fact, I'm pretty sure he is. That was the last earthquake that we had. I think it was the old man going, ah, what do you think? Oh, mate, look, like you, I've been following a bit on Twitter of what's coming up with all of this. It's interesting that the people that are the first ones to jump on side of men and say what we need is more masculine men are the women. Yeah. A lot of women on Twitter that are saying, cut this out for goodness sake. The problem we have is because there's not enough masculinity of the real kind. Yeah. All this talk of toxic masculinity from people that saying, but it's okay to have a bloke who claims to be a woman playing in women's sport. Yeah. It's a very crazy mixed up world we're living in. Yeah. I honestly think that half the reason why we're ending up with some of this crap that's going on in society these days hmm. is because if you look at our marriage rates and the women that are having children out of wedlock yep. and the influence that's being had on some of these children as they grow up, you've only got to look around. Every other week they've got some kid on a current affair that wants to play on the internet all day and when his mum turns the internet off, goes berserk hmm. and just trashes his room or whatever. They don't have a male influence in their life to say, hey, this is not how you behave. Mm. I was fairly strict with my kids, and they will tell you that I was fairly strict with them, and I don't back away from them. I'm certainly not ashamed of it. And I have reasonably well-adjusted professional people now who are contributing society. Yep. They are, like me, all net taxpayers. Yep. And I am proud of them for what they do. And if they're listening to the show, and I know that one of them does, I'm proud of you, buddy. Yeah. I really am. Yep. While people don't have those positive role models in their life, they can go off the rails. And if there's no one to pull them back, that's a problem. Mm. And to me, what the problem is now that all this sort of stuff is being seen as toxically masculine. Yep. And it's not that at all. It's actually role modeling. You've only got to listen to anyone who has a brain to realize that our society has lost so much over the last 25 to 30 years, I suppose. Yep. We're not living in the same place we once were. It really does worry me. The idea of toxic masculinity is toxic to me. Yeah. You're dead right, mate. They're drawing the minority numbers of men out there who don't behave well mm. and shining a spotlight on them. And yet the very vast majority of men are good blokes that are trying to do the right thing by their families and by their employers and by the world around them. Yeah. Like everything else these days, everything's being focused on the negative and not on the positive stuff. And that in itself is toxic. Yeah, well, the ferals that go belting their girlfriends and wives and partners, and, and it's not a one-way street there either, but the ferals that go and belt their kids, do that sort of thing, get drunk out in public and make an ass of themselves, they are not the majority of people. That is toxic behaviour. Call it for what it is. Yep. Those that are doing a positive role model for their family and the rest of the community, leave them to do what they do. And people need to understand that they can yell all they like. It doesn't make them right. That's what I think. Good on you. All right, bud. Thanks for that. See you next week. Maybe next week from Perth. We'll see how we do. All righty. See ya. When it comes to road transport, safety is everything. 
Seeing Machines Guardian minimizes the risk of fatigue and distraction for drivers and provides real-time monitoring centre analysis and appropriate intervention. Already trusted by more than 400 of the safest road transport businesses around the world, find out how Seeing Machines Guardian can safeguard your fleet, your valuable cargo and most importantly, your drivers. Visit www.seeingmachines.com On the Road News is brought to you by Big Rigs, Australia's national road transport newspaper. Top of the morning, Mike. Top of the morning to you, mate. How are you? Doing well, thank you. How about you? All packed up and ready to go? I am, mate. I'm sitting in a nearly empty room, so it sounds like I'm sitting in the toilet, but I'm not, I assure you. <laughs> We're heading off tomorrow, and we'll be making a stop out at Broken Hill. Yep. If anyone's listening and they see my big caravan, there's a big logo on the back that says, On the Road, number one Australian trucking podcast and the web address. They can get me on Channel 40, and we can have a bit of a chat. I didn't know you had that on the back of the van. It's uh, being put on as we speak. You have to send me a pic. I will. We'll put it up on the page. I will indeed. Better kick on here just before we do. Mate, I don't know about you, but I'm still learning stuff. The older I get, the more I learn off, huh? <laughs> I was invited to one of those gender reveal parties on the weekend. Have you heard of them? Yeah, I have heard of those. Yeah. I'd never heard of them before, so you can imagine how embarrassed I was when I arrived and found that everyone else was wearing clothes. <laughs> how did I know that was coming? <laughs> predictable. Oh, no. All right. Here we go. Commenting on a roadworthiness report recently released by NTI and the NHVR, mm. the Australian Trucking Association have said that keeping well-maintained vehicles is the key to trucking safety and productivity. I'm gobsmacked. That's unusual for you, Mike. <laughs> I'm absolutely flawed, you know, with the logic of that. Mm. Who knew that keeping your vehicles well-maintained would make them safer on the road? Gee, it's almost like that's been the plan the whole time. Yeah. I don't want to say too much about the ATA and their position on this. Look, they're 100% right. Mm. Maintenance is the key to road safety, or one of them anyway. Driver education, of course, and attitude are the other two. But examining the heavy vehicle maintenance areas, such as brakes, wheels, cuffings, all that sort of stuff, all covered in the report, changes the number of insurance claims and all that sort of stuff. It's a no-brainer. I would hasten to say, I reckon I've got old mate Steve Corcoran now, if you listen to this podcast, he'd be there, he'd be screaming. <laughs> well, we had all this sorted out with the Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal, yep. and you bastards shot it in the head. Yeah. And we did, and it was a mistake. We just need to look at the way things are going. Of course, the ATA are congratulating NTI and the NHVR on the significant research they do. Mm. And as you're fully aware, we've had access to some of that research. The numbers are quite mind-blowing. Mm. And I would recommend that people who want to actually view the report go to the bigrigs.com.au webpage to the news section and at the bottom of the story there's a section there that says click here and you can read the whole report for yourself. Yep. While you're sitting there all gobsmacked, still on the subject of the ATA, yep. their CEO has said that Australia's truck charging system is broken and must be fixed. What did he mean by that? The system's broken because the inflation forecast for 2021-2022 is only 1.5%. Governments have decided to increase the charges paid by Australian trucking businesses by 2.5%. Mm. Now, this doesn't sound like very much. To quote Mr. McKellar, he said that the decision will increase the registration charge for a workhorse prime mover and semi-trailer by $144 a year. Mm. And that's nothing in the scheme of things, really. Mm. But the problem with it is that there's increase in the effective rate of fuel tax by 0.6 of a cent per litre. Yeah. Now, 0.6 of a cent per litre, if you're buying 100 litres of diesel, it really doesn't matter. 
Yep. But if you're in the position of someone like Murray Lay that we talked to ages ago, and he said he burns 8 million litres, mm. that's going to be a big hit. And when you can't really pass that on, we've got a culture in the trucking business where we can't change our prices too much. It's a very, very predatory business transport. Everyone knows. Yep. As soon as you go and raise your prices, there'll be someone come along and do it price you did it for or whatever. And when you get these costs, and they aren't fixed costs. It's not like your rent or something like that. The amount of diesel you burn varies on the amount of work you do. Yeah. It's logic. It makes sense. And this is one of the reasons why the model's broken. Yep. The difference in expenditure from guys doing local work to line wall work to bush work, the prices they pay for their fuel, it's not a level playing field. The bigger companies have more buying power. If I went to BP and asked for a discount on my fuel, they'd probably laugh. If Toll went and said, hey, listen, we want 20 cents a litre off our fuel and we're going to buy 10 million litres a month, mm. BP would probably do that for the business. Now, I'm using BP as an example. I don't know whether that's right or wrong. But my experience as an owner-driver tells me that I had great difficulty getting discounts of any shape from any supplier. Mm. In fact, the only bloke I could get a discount was Frankie's Diesel in Melbourne and he's finished. And that was because I paid with a credit card. Mm. These things are broken. They do need to be looked at. Read the ATA submission and the original proposal. At the end of the story, there's a link to it. Please go and have a look. Make your own mind up about it, but something definitely does need to be done. Certainly does. And in Big Rigs this week, mate, there's a great piece about roadside assistance for trucks. It's a case of who you're going to call if you have a breakdown. It is who you're going to call. Now, everyone knows the NTI is the major sponsor of this show, and we do a lot of work with NTI. Saw this as a feature in the Edwards newspaper, and I honestly think that this is the best kept secret in road transport, the fact that this service even exists. Now, it is a news story, so why we're talking about it in the news. If you're in a car, you can join the NRMA, and they will come and look at you, or Queensland, whatever, what's it called in Queensland? RACQ. RACQ, right. Mm. In the car, you can join that. We don't have that option in commercial vehicles. We end up getting stuck with the dealer networks. Mm. And once you run out of your warranty on the truck or if you choose to call someone out from Brisbane out to Mooney to deal with your truck or from wherever they come from out that way, it can cost you thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. It can actually be quite eye-watering. So to have a service which works in the same way the NRMA or RACQ does for a commercial vehicle is a great idea. Mm. You simply have to just go through Look at the thing. We had the guy on from Roadside Assistance. There's something to talk about segment earlier, didn't we? Mm. If you're an owner-driver, go and check this out. See if it makes sense for you to do it. Because sometimes you need some roadside assistance and the day that you need it will be the day when you're a 1,000 kilometres from anywhere and you just need the help. Yep. You'll never miss your water till it's dry. Indeed. NGI Roadside Assist. If I was an owner-driver, which I'm not, but if I was, and when I was, I wish this service had been around when I was. Yeah. If I was, this would be one of the things that I'd be thinking about in my business plan. Yep. Track assist, you've probably seen it in the side of a nice supercar's Mustang. What <laughs> <laughs> if I watched the race, mate? No, well, you should. should. I should. I should. Also in Big Rigs this week, the TWU has called for an increase in pay rates for transport workers mm. as the economy is on the move again with people returning to work. Should I tell you what my colleagues call the Transport Workers Union? My line hall colleagues call it? I've got a feeling you're going to. The Totally Worthless Union. There you go. And (laughs) I've got to admit, there are times when I actually agree with that. I told a friend of mine I was going to talk about this on the show, 
And he said, yeah, he said, the only time the TW is actually interested in me when my fees are due. If I've lapsed on my fees, then they worry about my welfare. Mm -hmm. I have asked the TWU to join us on this show several times to talk about all these issues, and it's crickets. Yep. I don't understand why it needs to be so hard. They're talking about changes needed within the transport industry. I would ask the TWU why they opposed Trevor Warner's application through the Fair Work Australia to modify the award so that long-distance drivers Sydney and Q's got paid for their time to sit there. Yep. They opposed that. That's a question that I want to ask Michael Kane. If he ever grows a set and decides to have a chat with me, I won't backpedal. Yep. TWU is a standing invite to any one of you at any time to come on this show and talk to me about anything. But be aware that that's a question you're going to get. Yeah. Let's move along. The TWU, the Totally Worthless Union, disgusts me. All right, good. Well, I'm glad you didn't hold back on that one, mate. Why would I not tell people what I really think? Indeed. Well, that's what you think. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Hey, listen, mate, just quickly, a little bit of information for our listeners. Mm. The American country music sensation, Tony Justice, you're going to be having a chat with him soon. I am. We're going to have a Zoom meeting with him and hopefully Jane Denham and hopefully have some fan questions. He's released a new album, and we're going to have a bit of a chat about that on the show. We're going to play some of his tracks. And if there's anyone out there that's a Jane Denham or a Tony Justice fan, because they recorded that track, Long Distance Love Together, can email me, text me, give me a call, send questions we can ask on the show. That would be great. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm a big fan of both Jane and Tony's music, and it's going to be a real treat for me. I might just fanboy right out. Yeah. I might have to throw a bucket of water over you. <laughs> Well, you're going to have to do a good job, mate, because I'll be on the way to Perth. Yeah, indeed. All right, mate. Well, that's it for us for this week. Just one last quick thing. I've been reading a book on the evils of drinking alcohol, and it's really hit home to me. I know exactly what I have to do now. <laughs> what do you have to do? i got to stop reading books. <laughs> good on you, mate. Keep it safe. I'll see you on the road. See you, bud. For all the latest industry news, go to www.bigrigs.com.au. Hey everyone, Kermie here. Hope you're travelling well, staying safe and on the right side of the white line, by which of course I mean the left. I also hope you're tuning in to the On The Road podcasts with Mike and Andy, because if you're not, two things will happen. One, you'll be missing out on some great interviews, a good few laughs, and what's generally going on out there in truckland. Uh, what's the other thing? Ah, that's it. You won't have heard this plug for On The Road. Hmm. Okay then, so, those of you who are already on here, go and tell your mates about On The Road. They can find it on Spotify or iTunes at On The Road Aussie Trucking Podcast. But you knew that, didn't you? Because you're already... Yeah, look, just go and sell them, okay? Cheers and take care of you. Easing us out of the show this week, American blues artist Lincoln Durham proves a song about the truckie's life being tied to the road doesn't have to be twangy country music. Here's Lincoln with his laid-back, cruisy and bluesy trucker's love song. Another road Another city The wheels keep rolling On down the line the price I pay for this lonely life is getting high as time goes by.
us to the end of another On The Road show. We hope you enjoyed it. On The Road is brought to you by NTI, Australia's leading transport and logistics insurer. Visit the website at nti.com.au. For more On The Road news and additional features, visit our website at www.ontheroadpodcast.com.au. Be sure to join us same time next week. In the meantime, play nice with each other and most of all, stay safe out there. Bye for now. Bye-bye. The team here at On The Road are great believers in the right to free speech, and whilst we might not always be in 100% agreement with the views and opinions of our guests and contributors, we firmly support their right to hold and express those opinions. Another road, another city, Getting better each day And you were always On my mind Every road sound says Before I left you behind Another hard life Long forgotten On this long
NGI 